like to join with Colton and Jason and welcome you, you here today. And I too am thankful and, and glad to be here with you to worship God together. And I uh, thank Charles for the prayer on my behalf. And it's my prayer as well that the things that we talk about will be helpful to you and will build you up and be edifying to you. So I've been working my way through the Sermon on the Mount and looking at Jesus' announcement in the first part of Matthew and, and throughout the Gospels his announcement of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, He went out preaching and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was Jesus' message and as he started his ministry. This was the announcement and the good news that he had. He said, The kingdom that was foretold in the prophets is here, and it's now. And Jesus was bringing this kingdom to its fruition, and he was bringing in a new covenant, calling his people back to God to live in a true relationship with God to be a kingdom of priests that would spread God's blessing to the world. And so as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing what the markers of his kingdom are, what the people who make up the kingdom look like, and the characteristics that, that they show. Last time I talked about the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are this list of blessings that Jesus pronounces on people who don't really look that blessed by the world standards. And it creates a new value system in the kingdom of God. And he tells us and he shows us that in order to live a life of true happiness, we must do the things that are meaningful, not the things that are expedient or pleasurable. And by us living out the blessing in this world, we become the force for change in God's kingdom. We become the salt of the earth. We become the light of the world. And in the last half of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shifts his focus to the law. He's going to look at the law and the prophets and see how the kingdom and how Jesus relates to it, how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. And so as Jesus is talking about this new kingdom that's arriving, he's talking about these new values, this new way of living, there's a lot that sounds new. And this is starting to make a few people nervous. If you remember who he's talking to, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to the Israelites who have an established law. And a lot of these things sound new. They sound different. Their way of life was completely established in the law and in the Old Testament. And it's who they were as a people. They lived their lives by the Scriptures. And so some people would have raised some questions, would have raised some eyebrows at what Jesus was teaching. Like, what are you doing? We, we have the law. Why are you giving these new commandments? We kind of get nervous sometimes when a new politician comes along and proposes some new legislature or, or something like that. We're like, hey, this goes against the Constitution. We start getting nervous about that, right? And so this is part of the problem that the scribes and the Pharisees have with Jesus is they're looking at the things he's doing and thinking that it contradicts the law as they see it. Many of the actions that he's doing, he's, he's eating with sinners, he's associating with, with uh, tax collectors, with harlots, and, so, and having so-called violations of the Sabbath. There's a lot of things that, that is making them uncomfortable. And so Jesus is seeing the tension here, and he decides to address it head on. Let's just address the elephant in the room. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, he says, "'Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law 
until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the great, called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts out here and he says, I know there's been a lot of talk, a lot of these th- things seem new, but I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I have come to fulfill them. So what does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? Does that mean that they are incomplete? Well, the short answer to that is yes. The, the scriptures were incomplete. And they talked about and prophesied of a coming Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one who would establish this new kingdom. And Jesus is saying that as the Messiah, he's here to bring the scriptures to their completion, bring them to their fulfillment, and fulfill every law and prophecy. And so when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's not just talking about the law and the major and minor prophets. This is what they used to describe the entire Old Testament. You had the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, And then you have the prophets, which everything else was written by a prophet. And so you have the law and the prophets. And so I want to take a look at these uh, both real quickly, look at the prophets. But then we're going to shift our focus to the law and see how Jesus sees his kingdom fulfilling the law. And that's where he spends the rest of his time in Matthew chapter 5. So first we see that Jesus fulfills the prophets. So As we look at the prophets, they saw a future where there would be this coming kingdom. There would be the Messiah who would come to rule over God's people. And he would rescue Israel and restore them to a proper relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, the time is now, the kingdom is at hand, I am coming to fulfill these prophecies. And so he would go on to fulfill every prophecy that was written about the Messiah and about the kingdom. It's pretty interesting in that there's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. I counted, so you didn't have to. Just kidding. I didn't count. Now, some of these are pretty general descriptions of who Jesus would be, how he would be described, but some of them are extremely specific to where he would be born, the town he was born in, the year that he was born in. And so Jesus came and he fulfilled all of these prophecies. And the gospel accounts actually tell us of some of these prophecies. In Matthew chapter 2, as Mary and Joseph are fleeing from Herod, they go down to Egypt. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the Gospels don't give us an exhaustive list of all the things that Jesus fulfilled, but they give us a little bit of a taste, like this one here. This one fulfilled this specific prophecy. And that's for us, as we go back and read the Old Testament, we can start finding those prophecies, relating them to the Gospels. And so as we read through the Old Testament, there are it's saturated with signs and symbols that point to the Messiah and point to His coming kingdom. Additionally, one way that Jesus fulfilled the prophets was with the coming of this kingdom, with the announcement of the kingdom of heaven. And He is saying He's the one that's going to bring this kingdom here on earth. Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, I encourage you to go read those, but that is a prophecy about the eternal kingdom that would be set up here on earth in the time of the Roman Empire, and that this kingdom would go out and to fill the entire earth, and it would last forever. 
And then in Daniel chapter 7, it prophesies about the Son of Man who would come and rule alongside God, this human who would be exalted to rule with God. And so Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am here to fulfill these prophecies. And as Jesus goes to the cross, as he finds himself being faced with the cross and the death on the cross, this is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies and of the scriptures. This was the culminating act. And Jesus says it himself in Luke, in in the walk to Emmaus, he says, it was necessary that the Savior must suffer in all the law and the prophets. And so because of who Jesus is, he is the final prophet. He is the one who calls Israel back to a relationship with God. He calls in the nations to be blessed by God. He pronounces judgment. And he also gives us the true intentions of the law. And so Jesus also fulfills the law. As we look at Matthew chapter 5, he makes it clear that nothing will be left undone with him. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you're familiar with the King James Version, you may think of those words as not a jot and not a tittle. And basically, that, those are the smallest letters and pen strokes in writing. It says, I'm going to cross every T, I'm going to dot every I. Everything in the law is going to be accomplished. Everything is going to go fulfilled. And so, Jesus being subject to the law as a Jew and as an Israelite, he had to obey those laws. And he had to obey the 613 commandments that were given to Israel. So in these 613 commandments, there's laws of conduct, there's laws of ceremony, there's purity laws. And so it begs the question, if if Jesus is bringing these to their completion, what are we to do with it? How are we to approach the law as we read the Old Testament? And what is Jesus' expectation for his disciples in their relationship to the Old Testament? I think Jesus is making it clear here in Matthew chapter 5 that these things are important that we ought to approach them with wisdom and look for the wisdom in them. So Jesus being subject to the law, he was perfect in that. In 1 Peter 2, 22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so in one way that Jesus fulfills the law is that he kept every commandment that was given in the law. He was perfect. He fulfilled every last one. And because Jesus was perfect, the Scriptures tell us that He was uh, presented to God as a blameless sacrifice. And in doing so, Jesus fulfills the sacrifices of the old law. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 and 14, it says, For he entered once into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And going on, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews does an amazing job of tying all these things together and showing us how Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial requirements established in the Old Testament. And so Jesus came before God offering himself in his own perfect blood, and he offered it before God as a sacrifice. And he went in to God on our behalf. And in Hebrews, it talks about how the the sacrifices of the Old Testament were just copies of heavenly things. They were a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus fulfilled them by offering himself up to God. And in doing so, he secures forgiveness 
for you and me. Here at the end, he goes on to say, what does that do for us? It purifies our conscience from dead works so that we will serve the living God. It's a source of change within us. And so in doing these things and offering himself up, Jesus establishes the new covenant, the new law, the new covenant in his kingdom. And the writer goes on to quote a prophecy about this new covenant from Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 10, verses 15 and 16, it says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. We'll pause right there for a second, because one of the markers of this new covenant is that it would not be obeyed by compulsion, but because it's become internalized, because God's law has become written on our hearts. There's something intrinsic that has changed within us. We come to a point where we're obeying the law not because we have to, but because we want to. Well, how does, how does Jesus accomplish this? He goes on to say this, And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the answer. Jesus has offered us forgiveness. Through Jesus, the, the things that we have done to hurt ourselves, to hurt other people, those things are remembered no more. He forgives us. He blots them out. There's so much power in forgiveness, and it's something that doesn't come natural to us, but it was shown in Jesus Christ. If you think about a time where you've hurt someone, maybe you've uh, said something mean to somebody else, you've, you've deeply hurt and damaged your relationship with another person, and instead of retaliating, instead of seeking revenge, they offer you forgiveness. How does that make you feel? Well, forever changes the relationship. Something is completely different there, and it inspires you to live different in your relationship to that person. And so as we look at Jesus and his life, one of the characteristics and the things that he did was he sought out sinners to bring them to repentance. He went out to people who needed a Savior. He went out to the people who were hurting, in need of healing, those who were needing forgiveness. And so he reaches out to us today. In whatever state we're in, he calls us to come and live by his kingdom, to live in the new value structure of the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 5, he spends the last half doing this exact thing, calling his disciples to live to a new standard, to live to the standard of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he means by fulfilling the law. By looking at six laws in particular, he's going to take six examples, and he's going to show us the wisdom behind it. So he starts out with each of these saying, You have heard, this is the law. But I say unto you, and he provides a new commandment, gives us new instruction. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he giving us something that seems new? Well, he certainly has the authority to do so, but remember what he said. He's here to fulfill the law. And I think sometimes we look at this passage and we look at it in the sense of like, well, Jesus came and he, he fulfilled all the law. He brought it to its completion. And so we can just ignore the first two-thirds of the Bible. 
We, it's kind of hard to read. There's some stuff that, man, we get bogged down in. There's some uncomfortable stuff. And so I'd really just rather spend my time here in the New Testament. But is that Jesus' perspective on the old law? No, he's showing us that there's wisdom to be found in it. So he takes these six commandments. He gives us an example of how we should approach the Old Testament. And he views it in light of the whole law and the prophets. And so, you know, he says, if you relax one of these commandments, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you do them and teach others, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This reminds me of uh, something recently that happened with Boyd. And I did this as a kid, so I can uh, relate to it. But recently, Boyd was told, hey, get all the silverware out of the dishwasher and go put it up. So he takes all the silverware and he just dumps it in the drawer and, and shuts it. So Avery comes along and is like, Boyd, what is this? He busts out laughing because he knows something wasn't quite right there. Now, the question is, did he fulfill the commandment that was given to him? Uh, technically, he put the silverware up, he closed the drawer, it's all good, right? But no, he didn't fulfill the commandment. If he goes to the drawer and he opens it, and if you look inside, it's like forks are stacked here, spoons are right here, the knives go in this slot. There's a pattern here. There's something that's already established and developed. And by looking at that, he can gain wisdom to fulfill the commandment as it was intended. And so this is what Jesus is showing us in these commandments in the old law. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees' problem is they were shoving all the silverware in the drawer and closing it shut and saying, we fulfilled the law, we're good. But Jesus is saying, no, there's more to it than that. And if we look at the wisdom in the law, we'll find the true way to fulfill the law. And so, on the surface, Jesus gives us these commandments, and he really appears to be dialing up the heat. And as we come to these commandments, you know, Jesus steps on our toes a bit. He gets in our business. And it's because he is uncovering deep issues within our hearts, and he's uncovering some of our deepest problems. And so, as we look at the old law, was there a problem with it? No, there wasn't a problem with it. The problem was with the Israelites who broke the covenant. In Jeremiah 31, it says, they broke my covenant. And so, whenever we approach the old law, we ought to approach it to find wisdom in it. Paul describes the old law as a schoolmaster that would bring us to Christ. And so, as we look at these things, Jesus calls us to repentance. We're all sinners and we've been guilty of these things. But he reaches out, to forgive, uh, reaches out in forgiveness no matter where we are. So I'm going to start actually in the middle of these six laws, and not because I want to elevate one above the other, but I think Jesus goes on to comment some more about marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19 and that I think gives us some clarity and shows us that Jesus is fulfilling the wisdom that is in the law. So Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32 was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in this time, there was this practice that men would use divorce as a tool of oppression against their wives. If they didn't like their wife, they would send them away and put them away. Sometimes they wouldn't even bother to divorce them and keep them from remarrying another. Men used it for evil, and 
Likewise, today we see that divorce rates are extremely high, somewhere around 50%. And those are staggering numbers. And Jesus gives this commandment that divorce or that, se- uh, that, um, that marriage should only be annulled in the case of sexual immorality. So how does he come to this conclusion? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's about the only law that's given about divorce. And so the Pharisees come to him questioning about, about this in Matthew chapter 19. They said, can we divorce our wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus goes all the way back to page one of our Bibles to discover and show us the wisdom that's in the law. So in the beginning, God created male and female. He took a piece of Adam, he created Eve, and he brought them back together so that they could be one flesh. And he's showing us that marriage should always be treated as a holy union that is a lifelong covenant with your spouse. And that's because that marriage is the foundation for the family, it's the foundation for the church, and it's the foundation for a healthy society. And it's held in such high regard that it's used to talk about Christ's relationship to the church as a husband and wife relationship. But still, there's this example in the law from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the Pharisees press him on this. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And so Jesus gets at the issue here. It's about the hardness of our hearts. And with all of these commandments, it's about the hardness of our hearts. And so it's when one chooses to serve themselves instead of serving their spouse that things go wrong. So Jesus here is breaking down our hearts. And, you know, the interesting thing is that Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not specifically about reasons for divorce. And so I encourage you to go read that. We, we don't have time to study it here today. But Jesus is showing the, the high importance that, that's placed on marriage. And now, there are times in a marriage when things happen outside of our con- control and when the other person chooses to break their covenant. And whenever divorce happens, it's, it's a sad thing, it's a terrible thing, and it's an ugly process. But with all of these things that Jesus mentions here, Jesus' kingdom is marked with forgiveness. And this is really how he changes our hearts. This is how he causes a change within us. He meets us in whatever state we are in, and he calls you to live in the kingdom, to live by his commandments and live after his example. And so he calls you no matter where you are and despite what has happened in your past. The next thing we'll talk about is adultery. We're still a little bit out of order here, but I think Jesus talks about adultery before uh, the marriage teaching deliberately and on purpose. And so he says in in verse 27 and 28, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And so leading up to the marriage conversation, Jesus addresses adultery. And this is one of the Ten Commandments uh, from, that were originally given to the Israelites. And again, he shows us that this is a heart issue. Adultery starts in the heart. Adultery is the greatest threat to marriage, and therefore he puts this commandment in front of that. Marriage is the foundational unit for the family and for the church, and anything that would threaten that relationship must be eradicated. Anything that threatens the marriage relationship, we must get rid of it. And so this commandment isn't just for married people, but Jesus specifically talks to men here because men struggle more with this temptation. But the wisdom is still there for all of us. And to look on another person with lustful intent, we've already committed the sin. We've already committed adultery. And so it begs the question, how do I view other people? Do I, how do I view my brother and sister in Christ? How do I view my neighbors? Do I view them as someone who was made in the image of God, a unique human who bears the markers of God? Or do I view them as an object for my own lust? See, the issue with, work, uh, with looking at a person this way is that I turn them into an object for my own personal desires. And I've heard of a, a study that, that claims that the same areas in the brain light up when, when men see women who are in immodest clothing. The same areas of the brain associated with tools light up. And so I can turn someone else into an object for my own pleasure, an object for my own lust. And so it's not wrong to notice beauty in another person, but when they become the object for our stare and for our focus, this is when it becomes an issue. And it becomes a fundamental threat to you and the way that you view other people, and it becomes a fundamental threat to your spouse or your future spouse. And this is why Job told us that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look on a woman this way. And I think at this point, we've got to take a moment to address pornography. It's really scary and, and sad how much this is embedded in our society nowadays. I think the issue is, is far wider spread than we might think. And we know that it causes issues for people and, and how they view other people and how they view relationships. It causes terrible uh, expectations. But do we take time to consider the person on the other end? What are the chances that that person was brought into that against their own will? What are the chances that they were lured in that, into that place where they objectify themselves and make them an ob themselves an object for someone else's pleasure? I heard stories recently of men and women who have been trafficked into this industry and taken advantage of. And viewing pornography perpetuates this problem. And I think as a culture, we've got to come and have a serious debate and discussion about the harms that this caused. Because it's not just the harm that it could do for me. It's the harm that it does for other people. And, it, and people's lives have been destroyed by this. Terrible things have happened to other people. And so Jesus tells us we've got to take some extreme actions. We've got to take some extreme actions to get rid of these temptations. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Because it's better to enter into eternal life without these things than to enter into hellfire with them. 
And so if that means you need to get serious about renewing a covenant, if you need to talk to somebody here, we encourage you to do that because it's a serious issue. And so maybe it's finding some filters or accountability software or, or maybe it's changing what's in your heart. You've got to ultimately change what's inside of you, change the way that you view other people. Okay, so we've got past the real difficult one. This is what you call a rough transition. But <laughs> we're going to move on to murder and anger. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said, so heard that it was said in the days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's another one of the Ten Commandments. And for most of us, obeying the commandment, you shall not murder, is not a real big step up, right? We don't have murder, murderous intentions in our heart when somebody wrongs us, and we get angry with, with someone. But what's the ideal? Well, Jesus is saying anger is the precursor to murder. And if we have anger in our hearts towards our brother, it puts us in danger of the same judgment. And so, not only that, anger is just, if you think about it, really a key to a miserable lifestyle. I mean, just completely wreck your life and make every day miserable. And I think when we're angry with other people, we get to a point where we demonize them, we call them names, we accuse them of malicious intent. And what are we doing when we, when we say those things? What are we doing when we call people names? Well, we're really building ourselves up, and we're deflecting blame onto someone else. You can't think of murder and anger without thinking of Cain and Abel. And so as we look at Cain and Abel, Cain brought a sacrifice to God. God rejected him. His sacrifice was not sufficient, was not pleasing to God. And Cain becomes very angry about that. He's very upset. And God stops him. He says, what are you angry about? Everything is within your control. It's all in your power to change this. But if you let anger in, sin lies at the door. So you've got a choice that you can look internally and see how I can fix the problem, or you can choose to blame other people. And sin follows if you blame other people. And so instead of looking within himself, he chooses anger, and that anger turns to bitterness, turns to wrath, and turns to vengeance and violence. And so Jesus, too, is telling us we are responsible. He says, before you go and worship, if you've got a problem with your brother, stop what you're doing, go resolve the conflict, and be reconciled with your brother. He also uses the example, the longer that we leave anger unchecked, the worse it becomes. It's like uh, whenever you've got a court case. He says, settle those things before you go to court. Settle them outside of court, because even today, if those things go to court, Everything gets more expensive. You're going to pay even more. So settle these things when they're small. Settle these things when they, they can be reconciled or you'll pay dearly for it. Swearing falsely, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, to the, it was said that, excuse me, let me start again. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say unto you, do not take an oath at all. And then he says, don't swear outside of 
anything outside of yourself, by anything outside of yourself. And he finishes by saying, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When I was a kid, we weren't allowed to swear. For example, saying, man, I swear the fish was this big that I caught. And we've all heard the phrase, I swear to God. Even saying those things makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But it's much more than taking the Lord's name in vain. The commandment goes much deeper than that. And if you think of what he's getting at here, if we swear in the name of God or anything else, we're propping ourselves up. We're bolstering our reputation, and we're leaning on God to boost our reputation. And it's not even just about swearing or about making promises that you don't fulfill. It's about the way you talk in everyday life, the way you represent yourself. You know, maybe I don't swear, but I spin a story in a way that it benefits me or it makes me look better. I tell half-truths or I lie by omission. And all of these things are to make me look better, to bolster my reputation. And Jesus gives us the new command. Be clear and honest in your communication. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Don't hide behind your words. Do the things you say. Your yes means yes, and your no means no. He goes on to talk about retaliation, verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So now Jesus turns his attention to this retribution law. So the law was also used as a civil law. And this is one of the things in there, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this was in there to to be a deterrent against crime. It was a punishment for crime. But for people who are part of the kingdom of God, he says, turn the other cheek. Again, this hits us at our heart, and it's one of those difficult things to do. Turn the other cheek. I mean, if someone slaps me, I just offer up the other side. When someone's rude to us and they say things that are uncalled for or, or, uh, or they're ugly to us, you know, we immediately want to retaliate. Immediately want to put them in their place. Show them up and teach them a lesson. I unfortunately experienced this uh, very recently in a game of basketball. We had a, a guy come and join us, and he'd never played with us before, younger college guy. And the whole time, he's yapping, he's, he's uh, talking the whole time, talking trash, and it's really getting under my skin the whole time. And I'm getting more and more frustrated with it. Well, then... He says something directly to me that I took a lot of offense to. And instead of turning the other cheek, I turned around and pushed him. And <laughs> immediately everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? And other people there took offense to what he said too. And this is like, hey, we're just a group of guys from church trying to have fun. And then he turns it around and says, well, he's not acting very much like Jesus. He had me. <laughs> he got me. In that instance, I... I didn't turn the other cheek. I had a lot of things to go home and think about, and it bothered me because I let this guy get under my skin, and, immediate, and he said that, and I immediately snapped. And so as Christians, Jesus is telling us we shouldn't expect equal outcome. We shouldn't expect vengeance or revenge. 
And this could be in the case of injury. This could be, he goes on to say, this could be in the case of someone asking a favor of you. If someone asks you to go a mile, go with him too. If somebody asks to borrow money of you, don't refuse him. And so we shouldn't be seeking revenge or, or repayment, but we should bear these things patiently. We should turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and act in love towards someone. And this is one of the hardest teachings to internalize because it goes against us, especially if we're talking about potential violent acts towards us. And Jesus isn't saying that we can't get ourselves out of a bad situation. I encourage you to do that if you're in a place where violence is, is occurring. But it matters how we respond to other people. And we don't know other people's situations. We don't know why they're acting that way. They could be covering up their own issues and insecurities. But if we choose to respond to them in love, if we choose to respond to them in the way Jesus did, we can change their life. We can be, make a difference in their life. And that leads into the last one that Jesus gives us, and that's loving your neighbor. Verses 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so Jesus here in these last two is really teaching us some hard things. You know, in human wisdom, if I look at an enemy, I want them to be destroyed. I want them to be defeated because that's what they want for me, right? But Jesus tells us to love our enemies. I think a lot of times in our English language and how shallow we are as a society, the word love really has conflicting meanings and, and uh, confusing meanings. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that I get for my enemies. But if we look at God's example, and he's calling us to be children of God, to show the character of God, God loves his enemies. He wishes the best for them. He acts in a way that is in their best interest. And he calls us to do the same. And Jesus gives us the example of like, you can't tell which farmer is just and, and which one is evil by how much rain his crops get or how many days of sunshine he gets. And ultimately, if we look at the example in Jesus Christ and God sending his son for us, while we were still enemies of his, still enemies of God, enemies of the cross, he reaches out in forgiveness to us. And so when people hate us and persecute us, it's hard to love them. But we are to act in their best interest. And perhaps the least that we can do is pray for our enemies. Pray that they would come to know God. Pray that their hearts would be softened by Jesus Christ. And pray for them and pray for their best interests. And in doing so, we exhibit the character of God. And we will be called the children of God. And so it's these acts of love and forgiveness that change the world. And it's the acts of love and forgiveness that changes our lives. And so Jesus finishes here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These things are tough. And you come to this one and you're like, okay, I'm out, right? I can't be perfect. 
I mean, the list we've gone through, I've broken those hundreds of times. But what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to change our hearts, to obey him from our hearts, to overhaul our hearts, to change the way that we think and the way that we act. And we're right in that we can't be perfect on our own, but this is where Jesus steps in and offers love and forgiveness. And he calls us to change our life. And he doesn't expect these things to come immediately. We shouldn't expect these things to come immediately. But it's something that over a period of time, day by day, week by week, we'll see our lives changed. A couple of years ago was the first time that I sat down and read the Bible in a year. And if you've not done that, I encourage you to do it. Space it out however long you need to. But what, the thing I learned the most from that is how just a little bit of effort every day, a little bit of time and a little bit of practice every day can lead to great results. And so if you try day by day, week by week, this week I'm going to work, it, work on my anger. This week I'm going to work on the way that I view my neighbor. This week I'm going to work on loving my enemies day by day, week by week. Jesus calls us to live like him. We may be looking back a year or two from now and saying, I don't recognize that person because Jesus has changed me and his kingdom has changed my heart. Jesus uh, sums everything up and, and, by, and talks about fulfilling the law and the prophets in this way in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as we look at Jesus and how he came and he fulfilled the law and the prophets, he fulfilled the prophecies, he established his kingdom, he inaugurated it with his blood, and he showed us how to live in relationship to our God in relationship to our neighbor. And he says, all the laws and all the prophets hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God like he is the true almighty creator that he is for the forgiveness that he offers you and treat your neighbor like you would yourself. Treat your neighbor like a unique human being made in the image of God. And in doing these things, we write these things on our hearts we too fulfill the law and find the wisdom in the law. And so as we offer the invitation this morning, if you're struggling in some way and need help and need prayers of the church, we want to invite you to come. If you need to renew your covenant with your eyes and with your heart, if you need to work on anger, if you need to work on your relationship with your spouse or any other issue, Jesus invites you to come in. Come as you are. And he offers love and forgiveness. And through time, he will change your heart and call you to live like he did. And if you're ready to begin your walk with Christ in baptism today, to enter into the eternal kingdom, we ask that you come as we stand and sing.